You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes we're going to be talking about James Bond and Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Right, about 15 or so years ago, in the wake of the TV movie, but before any kind of official announcements started to happen, and before I read the thing in Doctor Who magazine where they interviewed certain TV people who were known to be Doctor Who fans, most of whom have actually written for the series in the meantime, it just started to feel like... Something had changed. Curse of Fatal Death was a perfect example of this, where Doctor Who was no longer an embarrassment in the public consciousness, but it started to feel like the world was ready to have Doctor Who back. And then you had things like there was a news story, a completely spurious news story about Shane Ritchie being in talks to play the Doctor. And it was ridiculous. Right, Shane Ritchie was never going to be playing the Doctor. But that was the ridiculous thing about it, that Shane Ritchie was in talks to play the Doctor. The idea that somebody would be playing the Doctor didn't seem so ridiculous. So in September 2003, when they finally announced Doctor Who is coming back and Russell T Davis will be writing it, it was a pleasant surprise to hear it, but it wasn't a surprise to hear it. It just seemed, you know, as if the time was right. In fact, as if the time was overdue and as if the world was definitely ready for Doctor Who to come back. So prior to the announcement, there was already this sense of anticipation. I had anyway, Mm -hmm. this sense of anticipation that eventually somewhere in the not too distant future, there would be more Doctor Who. And once the announcement's made, the anticipation really starts to build. And when you find out Christopher Eccleston's going to be the Doctor, oh boy, does it get exciting. Mm -hmm. And then the series returns, and it's brilliant. Now, at about the same time, around about 2000, Mm -hmm. something completely opposite to this was happening. The complete antithesis of this. Somebody had disappeared And while this person had disappeared, there was this this sense of dread that this disappearance wouldn't be forever, Mm. that it was only going to be for a certain amount of time. And always with the sense of dread, little clues as to this person's reappearance would appear. For example, his daughter started to become successful. And when your child's becoming successful, if you've already had success, it must niggle in the back of your mind, I could be successful again too. And this man's music started to be reappraised. Funky young music acts would start to reference it, cover one of his songs even. It's taken ten years since the return of Doctor Who, but finally the inevitable has happened. And I have to say... It was one of the worst moments in my life this week (laughs) when the announcement came and all I can say is no Collins required.
Can't Come on, JR, think twice. No more puns. <laughs> Any more puns, you'll find you're not on the show next week. <laughs> Seriously? Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. <laughs> Mark, you went to see Spectre this week. I did, yeah. Neither of us two have seen it. You haven't seen it, have you, Simon? No. No, I've not seen it either. Mm. What did you think of it, Mark? Very enjoyable. Um, I'm not sure it's my favourite Daniel Craig Bond film. I won't be spoiling it, because I know there are a lot of people who haven't seen it yet. What is your favourite Daniel Craig Bond film? I think probably Casino Royale. Yeah, I have to concur mm. with that. I have to say, that's the only one I've seen. But it was great. So, really? Yeah. yeah. But, but uh, like you were saying earlier, I don't, I, I don't tend to get inspired to watch Bond films these days. I like my Bond shallow and uh, cheesy and cheesy yeah mm. so I'm a, I'm a more man well yeah mind you one of the best bonds is Dr. No mm. and I and that is shallow and cheesy but it's not shallow and cheesy in the same way as the others yeah I think Roger Moore took it to a whole new level of cheese yeah I mean level level at die is my favourite by yeah. far yeah really yeah I've got a real soft spot for you only live twice you know that kind it's of my favourite theme. You mm, yeah, yeah. It's got a kind of a slightly melancholy edge, mm, mm. and yeah, it's still just as cheesy and daft as the rest of them, and still has a set pieces. Anyway, we were asking Mark what he thought of Spectre. <laughs> yes, um, some fantastic set pieces, as you would expect. The opening section, I won't go into detail. Aren't all the set is... pieces already in other Bond films? Yeah, I suppose if something that's been around this long, you are going to start repeating yourself a bit. But um, there are little bits that avoid going to cliche. Um, so yeah, the the opening section is action packed, as you would expect. Um, there's an incredible car chase scene as well, which again I can't really say too much about without spoiling it. Um, and um, a pretty decent villain. Um, so they did. Do they give Bond a chance to be Bond, or or is it another character piece? Because I I thought Casino Royale was quite a. It's it's in keeping with the tone of the the previous Daniel Craig films. So it's not going to be you're not going to suddenly come out of the cinema with your eyes being open to a whole new take on Bond. It's very much they've realised they've got a winning formula and they're they're sticking to it. It's not Bond, is it? To be honest. Casino Royale was the last Bond film. Mm. What they did with Casino Royale was they had a Bond film for the first 45 minutes and a Bond film for the last 45 minutes. And in the middle, they did something with Bond that was completely brand new. Mm. And what they've done is they've just kind of expanded on that, really, Mm. haven't they? I think certainly in the period before Daniel Craig's first film came out, um, you had things like the Bourne series of films, which gave a whole different spin to that type of genre and I think they I don't think they're going for the Bourne thing they did with Quantum of Solace it, it probably informed the way that they wanted I don't think it's the Bourne thing so much mm-hmm. as the same thing that Russell T Davis did with Doctor Who mm-hmm. he took something that was shallow and he gave it soul mm-hmm. and that's what they're trying to do with Bond yeah. I mean the, the Bourne films are action-packed but they're gritty and edgy and really they don't have that much more soul than the original bond films to be honest born at the center of it all is a bit of a blank space is a little bit more what's the word 
I don't know. I hesitate to say realistic. <laughs> Ground, it's grounded, know, grounded in reality a bit more, yeah. It's yeah, obviously it's, it's, the characters come from somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, so. I mean, Christoph Waltz is the, the main bad guy um, who's got pretty decent form from the stuff he's been in before. Um, the, the whole Inspector. Cast, You're back to Spectre. Yeah, yeah. When you say the bad guy, I think everybody knows who it is. It's called Spectre. Hmm. I shan't expand on it. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi Harris comes back as Money Penny. She's really good. Um, and oh, I forget the the chap who plays the new Q, but he's excellent. I forget his name. It's really bugging me now. Ben Whishaw. Yes, he's really good. <clears throat> In the middle of Casino Royale, mm. they tried to turn Bond into a human being, only vaguely. Mm. And then in Quantum of Solace, which was, <clears throat> well, apart from the fact that the, the script got scuppered we by... We had the writer's strike, didn't we? The writer's strike, yeah. so they weren't able to fully develop it. But Quantum of Solace was supposed to be mm-hmm. a sequel to some of the events of Casino Royale. Well, it follows directly from the end of Casino Royale, doesn't it? But the idea with Quantum of Solace should have been... Or you can see the idea that they they thought they were having mm-hmm. was to properly humanise Bond yeah. because Quantum of Solace was essentially, I suppose, the film that should have followed on Her Majesty's Secret Service if Bond had been humanised already back in the late 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And then in Skyfall, you get two hours of pseudo-Bond mm-hmm. before half an hour of completely non-Bond. And I'm I guessing... I love that film. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's okay. It's mm-hmm. a good film, but mm. I think it's falls far short of being a classic. Mm. But is Spectre the film that finally turns James Bond into a human being as opposed to a caricature? Well, being a, a typical nerdy fan, I had to rank the Daniel Craig films. So I had Casino Royale number one, then Skyfall, then Spectre, and then. I didn't Sentiment ask where bollocks. it falls. I didn't ask where it falls in the rankings, Mark. I asked, <laughs> is this the film that follows that last half an hour of Skyfall? I think, um, yeah. If you're if you're sold on this particular spin on James Bond, you won't be disappointed when you leave the theatre. Yeah, I figured as much. I will watch it probably mm. when it comes out on DVD, mm. but. Well worth the price of the admission, um, but not necessarily my favourite Daniel Craig. <clears throat> All right, fair enough. What about the theme tune? Anyway, moving on. Uh, we had this discussion off air mm. a few weeks ago, mm. the week that the theme tune was first released. Don't get me wrong, the score for the film, really impressive. Well, isn't the score by... Um... It's the same chap who did Skyfall, and I forget his name now. Not David Arnold. No, it's is not it not David Arnold? No, it's not David Arnold. Okay. It's the same enough. composer who did Skyfall, and I can't remember his name. I found My David Arnold's a bit mechanical. Mm. Is that the right word? Yeah, on the cusp of rather being influenced by the John Barry, they almost sounded almost pastiche in, mm. at times. Yeah, yeah, it sounded like he was just taking what had gone before. I, would, I always think of the garbage track, you know, The World Is Not Enough as mm. being... I can't even remember how that goes. You know, like if somebody says... That's a cue for you to sing it. (laughs) (laughs) The world is not enough. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. see, the melody is pure bog, doesn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the score is really good, but uh, <clears throat> Sam Smith is just dreary. So dreary. Yeah, but this was the discussion we had, and we weren't recording at the time, so mm. we might as well have it on air. There was this massive backlash. Mm-hmm. When the song was released, well, it's gone to number one in the UK. Uh, isn't it the, supposed to be the first Bond film to go to number one? Yeah, uh, Bond yeah. Uh, theme to go to number one. Yeah, but as I, I as I said online, though, if you go back to the times of Duran Duran, it was a big deal to have a number mm. one record. You had to sell mm. yeah. a heck of a lot yeah. of records, and it's not that big a deal now. Well, not only that, but Adele's well, still only got fifty-two number one weeks of the year. Adele's theme didn't come out to the Wednesday of the week it was released for some reason. So well, Sam Smith went to number one overnight. His mm. came out the day mm. before the chart. Mm. Or 48 hours, maybe. Was it like, out on the Friday? Play, obviously enough people one like it Sunday? to make it number one. But, um, okay, to finish my mm. sentence, the backlash was amongst the people who were on our Facebook, Twitter timeline. So right? what you're saying mm. is sad old gits who aren't in tune with what's cool. Not sad old gits who aren't in I'm tune just... with what's cool. Sad old gits who aren't in tune with what's present. Yeah. And sad old gits, okay, as soon as you brought that expression <laughs> up. But uh, this is the discussion we had. Yeah. I said that the last three or four Bond films have mm. been an attempt to humanise Bond, mm-hmm. to give him an empathetic backstory yeah and so therefore the theme for this bond film is just reflecting that oh, it I is know. i don't know because for me it's shallow <laughs> no, but it's the really idea shallow of it, songwriting it's the bad. idea of it is that this because what most people are saying is it's not punchy like a bond song should be and my and i'm not saying i like the song and yeah. i'm not saying i like the no, singer no, no. But what i'm saying is what they've obviously gone for with this song mm. is something that reflects the fact that they're humanising Bond yeah, by yeah. being less punchy, yeah. by being slightly more emotionally Melan- oh, driven, it's kind of in a way. Then sacri- it's possible to be saccharine melancholy. Is that possible? <laughs> Maybe he's just invented a new genre. He has, yeah. Sickly sweet melancholy. Really, really does nothing for me at all. I, lo- I like stuff like Leonard Cohen and Morrissey, so it's not exactly... Um, no. You know, cheerful stuff, but it's just there's no doesn't feel like there's, there's any no soul substance. To it. Yeah, there's no soul to it, in my opinion. I gotta say, uh, we have. Do you know what? It could be done to the guy's age though. He's a very young artist, and I don't mm. think. I suppose. I mean, I don't think the song itself is awful. It's not. It's probably the best thing he's done. Oh, it's easily the best thing he's done. Mm. And I'd say if you took his voice off it and put somebody else's voice on it, mm. I think the reaction to it might have been possibly not hugely different. But I don't mm. think the backlash would have been, you know, the backlash yeah. that we saw would have been mm. quite as pronounced. From a personal taste point of view, so many of the James Bond themes, some of those little things that John Barry does with little chord changes, key changes, mm. things like that. Hairs He's on the back doing of, them all. Hairs on the back of the neck. There's no key change in there, is there? Yeah, there's two or three. Is there? There is. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't wash it's over. Done. It he's, washes over you rather than... He's taken all the Bond chords and key changes and I stuff like that. I think that's down to arrangement. He's I don't playing think that's all down the to right songs. notes, not necessarily no, 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 no. in the right order. Exactly, well, This Mark. is it. But the arrangement is a mellow piano instead of 
a punchy guitar and punchy strings. It's like I tell you, you what it is. Yeah, go on. This is the Bond version of the version of Mad World that went to number one a few years ago. Now, if you'd have taken the entire Tears for Fears oeuvre mm. and played them that version of Mad World cold, mm. you know, without the film and everything else that went with it that propelled it into the public consciousness, mm. if you'd have taken the rest of Tears for Fears oeuvre and played them, particularly early Tears for Fears, because mm. Mad World was second album Tears for Fears. Yeah. First. Is it first, even? First album, yeah. yeah if, you, if you played them the first Tears of Fears album mm. without Mad World on it, yeah. right? Crucially, without Mad World on it, mm. and then played them, I can't even remember the singer. What was the singer called? Do you remember? Uh, they sang, didn't well, they? Kurt Smith and... No, 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 no the right. singer who did the new version. Oh, Gary... Oh, I should know. <laughs> My favourite film. Anyway, play them. Play yeah. Tears for Fears fans the rest mm. of that Tears for Fears album, yeah. but not that song, yeah. and imagine that they've never heard that song, and then play them this other guy yeah. singing yeah. that song, okay. and they will all say, why have we done that? That's got absolutely nothing to do with Tears for Fears. Mm. They would never have recognised it as mm. a Tears for Fears mm. song. And yet, because you know the original, you can see the original yeah. in the cover. This Sam Smith Bond song, to me... Mm. I can hear the bondness in it. I can clearly oh, I can hear the hear bondness it. Yeah. in it. I can oh, no. hear it. But what I'm saying is I think a lot it's of that comes song. from the string arrangements. And I think yeah, that's been yeah. layered on top after it. I think no, he catered them with the an bonds. acoustic demo. And somebody, the, the mm. string arranger, I think, has layered some stuff in there. So, no, the yeah, bond, it's not quite there. Let's put this bit in there. No, the bond is in the music, not just in the string arrangement. Mm. It's just that it's got that... I think you can make that... any song sound Bond-esque by doing... No, 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 because there's really a very do. specific I'm... set of chords that they use for Bond songs. Mm. I, th- I think it's, you know, it has a Bond theme. It's got the, the sound, but it's just his voice that doesn't do it for me. And I think if you had someone... In my opinion, if it's a Bond theme, you need someone who can really belt it out. Um, and he's just, it just comes across as very limp and a bit. Do you know who we need on this is Bill Bailey because he's brilliant at the mm. science of music and he could, ter- he's one of these people, well, you've, you've heard him, where he can take a particular song and play it in a certain style and say, well, what, what you do is his, you do this. His craft work interpretation of the Okie is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I should make it my mission to get him on next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. If only oh. that were true. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should mention this, because I never mention things I do on the podcast. You know, all evidence to the contrary, because Lee's not here this week, but he usually brings them up and says, oh, you're going to talk about that again. But I wrote a thing called The Happy Man, oh, God, about two years ago, for um, Scott Burdett. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a script for a little independent, for a little unofficial audio drama thing. And he's... Finally, the first episode came out this week. And actually, probably by the time this podcast goes out, the second episode should be out as well. It's like three 25-minute, half-hour mm. episodes. Eighth Doctor. Scott's playing the Eighth Doctor himself. He does, well, as you've probably heard, he does a brilliant impersonation. He does. Well, he used to do them for our show, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He's also playing the villain in this, the happy man himself. And, well, it's kind of a... Well, it was supposed to be Seventh Doctor when I wrote it, and it was supposed to be like an homage to things like Paradise Towers and the Happiness Patrol. The sort of slightly more, mm-hmm. sort of slightly more political Seventh Doctor. So I've written this three-part politicized Seventh Doctor story, and he's decided he's going to play the Doctor in it himself. So now it's an Eighth Doctor story. <laughs> but there you go. And uh, well, I don't know if people want to track it down. Bandrill 
productions right. on Facebook or mm. on the internet, The Happy Man. Because that is the only high-profile audio news this week, isn't it? There's not been any more not really. big announcements. <clears throat> Have you been on a like, right funny, Mark? We don't do yeah, the news yeah, on this podcast. Right funny. Hmm. It's, well, you know, it's been mentioned. Nobody it? listening to this podcast will not know that news, Mark. Not after last week, anyway. So, anyway, uh, yeah. He does this. He did this on my radio show as well. Do you want to say what you think about the news then, Mark? I think it's great. I think anything that's going to bring more people to Big Finish is more power to them, really. I mean, I can't imagine they make huge amounts of money. Um... But I think what they put out there, considering what they've got to work with in terms of budget, is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, anything that's going to raise the profile and bring more people to it, I think it's a great thing. Mm. I was actually speaking to someone or in a conversation. Oh, I was lingering around somebody else's conversation. No, I wasn't. He was talking to us, but... Um, Somebody who's written for, for <laughs> Jay, I'll just give written, me a really weird look. Like, what is he going on he's about? He's written, written for Big Finish, and and he was saying about how who's written for Big Finish? Or you're not, not saying, saying? I'm not saying. Could okay. be written to. But in as much as they do it for love, a lot of it is done mm. for love, and that's why it needs so much respect for what they do and the levels they get to. It's it's just brilliant. Mind-bogglingly brilliant and testament to what a brilliant show it is. I'm personally looking forward to the uh, River Song and Eighth Doctor set that's coming out. I really want to hear that. Mm. I think that could be really interesting. Do you really want to hear that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> it, but I tell you, the other big thing with it is is that um, it feels like there's, in some respects, there's no limits to it mm. as to what what can happen when you've got somebody. Actors of that stature getting yeah. in, involved in it, back involved in it, and returning mm-hmm. to it, and well, he is. She's not, of course. Mm. Sorry, she's she's new Tate, to Big I'm Finish. Yeah. Oh, right. yes. Yeah. Mm. So she. Well, Tennant's coming already, back to yeah. Big Finish, yeah. but yeah, and oh, this is the brilliant thing you can do with something like Big Finish because you record a play in a weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what the actors are up to the rest of the time. All they need is the wherewithal to do it and the go-ahead from their agent. Mm-hmm. So somebody like Catherine Tate, who, you know, not being rude, she doesn't have a stellar career. No. no. So she's a big name in mm-hmm. this country. I think probably in most other countries, if it hadn't been for Doctor Who, she'd probably not be a name at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does the Catherine Tate show do well abroad? I might be getting this completely wrong. I'm not sure. Wrong, but I'm not sure. I don't know. You wouldn't have imagined it would translate very well. Mm-hmm. So and she's been in a handful of films, mm. but you know, not to put too fine a point on it, she's not playing the lead in these films. No, no, I suppose. So somebody who's got a a decent career like she has, but not one that's sort of interstellar. Mm. And then, so she's kind of the kind of person, perhaps, who is of a level that Big Finish could persuade mm. to come and do this over the course of, you know, a couple of weekends or whatever, when they're going to be free anyway, mm. if you have, you know, the carrot to persuade them with, and the carrot to persuade them with is somebody of the stature of David Tennant, right? Mm. Mm. So, I mean, obviously Tate's come in because it's Tennant because they were the Doctor and Donna together. Mm. But what I'm saying is, to carry on the point that you were making, if you get somebody like David Tate, 
David Tennant in, mm. somebody who's never been in Doctor Who, but is of an equal stature to Catherine Tate, will be a lot easier now to persuade. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So you're not just getting in actors no. like Alex Kingston and Catherine Tate because they've been in Doctor Who. Once this comes out, and, uh, you know, it becomes a thing. Because mm. at the moment, it's a news item for Doctor Who fans, right? Yeah. Once it becomes a thing, once they're available, I mean, presumably, this will put Big Finish into places like W.H. Smith's. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's all good. It's is... all good. And, and all that aside, from a personal point of view, if somebody said to me, right, David Tennant says he's going to come back and do some more Big Finish. Yeah. And you could say, right, who do you want him to be with? Mm. It is the dream team. <clears throat> I think it's the best pairing. I know... A lot of people love Rose, and she was a great character, but I just felt like that dynamic of the Tenth Doctor and Donna worked so well. Was... Well, the thing is, it's easy to imagine now that you'll get Rose and Martha as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it's funny with the Rose thing. I know that there's various stories, you know, obviously there were novelizations and, and novelizations, but, you know, there were novels, novels. yeah, um, that kind of sidestepped the whole relationship thing that was going on between her and the doctor and i kind of feel that's in my head that's closed off that that did its arc and well, it feels like it but yeah. then so have many many other places where big finish have put plays yeah, yeah yeah that's what they do if they can get the actor you don't worry about whether it feels closed off if you mm. can get the actor you do oh my god the number of times they've had um stories with peter davison and sarah sutton which take place between two stories where it's just them Two, yeah. Mm. Other actors have left, and it's like a whole new kind of story arc that's just built up around that. <laughs> yeah, series, yeah. series nineteen B. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but they're great, you know. They um, when they're I really can imagine at, those like, two go really well. On they audio. do when they when they're really at their best. Big Finish can produce really <clears throat> groundbreaking stuff that you probably just couldn't do. I've not heard a massive amount of Big Finish, but the mm. ones I have heard, the ones I always prefer, are the ones that actually use the audio medium yeah. a bit more. Yeah, and it... That first Eighth Doctor series, not the first Eighth Doctor series, the Eighth mm. Doctor series that was done for radio. The oh, yeah, Lucy Miller ones. Yeah. Sheridan Smith. Yeah, mm. and the Dalek story yeah. was a bit drab because mm. it was very much an action-packed mm. Dalek story, mm. which doesn't work on audio. To, I haven't heard, is it the opening to Bright Eyes, is it? Is it Bright Eyes? I'm trying to think. Dark Eyes. Dark Eyes, sorry. Oh, yeah, got it the wrong way around. Yeah, I always get that and the rabbits mixed up. Um, <laughs> no, was it, no, it was Sideline Story was the opening one, wasn't it? I'm thinking of the first Tom Baker series, actually, not uh, the first okay. Lucy Miller yeah. series. Mm -hmm. The first Tom Baker series, the Dalek mm -hmm. story and the Sideline mm -hmm. story, not much cop, mm -hmm. because they tried to be like mm -hmm. TV stories, yeah. but without pictures. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other stories in between, the one... Uh, John Dorney did um, Wrath of Iceni. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Justin Richards did the one immediately before that, mm -hmm. which was the sort of uh, sort of slightly prisoner-esque haunted house type thing. Yeah. Those two were exceptional mm. because they used the audio medium a lot more. Mm. They, you weren't lacking the picture so much. There's a really good one with Tom Baker and um, Mary Tam, who's now sadly not with us anymore, called The Antimatter, which was really good, which riffed on things like Jeeves and Worcester and that kind of stuff, which is... And I forget who wrote it now, but it's really good. It was Jonathan Morris, wasn't it? May well have been. I could Sorry. be completely wrong. I mean, <laughs> Sorry to whoever wrote it, but... Yeah, if I'm very, completely wrong, I've just story. done somebody a terrible disservice. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say about the Dark Eyes thing is that I think it was said on here before that that was probably the most immersive that I've experienced 
I've not heard any of mm, Dark Earth. Yeah, it's really, the sound design is just mm. gorgeous. Particularly the first story of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good. Really mm. good. It feels... I don't know what the word is. It just feels full. Absorbing. Mm. Absorbs yes. you into the play. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Yeah, really good. <clears throat> All right. Oh, can I plug something? As soon as you've plugged yeah, your audio on. thing, just uh, very briefly out. Oh, came... brilliant. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> what? You plugged it. Now let's move on. <laughs> Go on, Simon. Ignore him. It is for charity, so let's is it get the... it in. Secret Invasion. Thinking. Secret Invasion. Came out today as a download. Uh, today being Halloween. Um, <laughs> and it's a collection of stories, an anthology uh, based as a launch point, uh, the work of H.P. Lovecraft. So it's a load of... Uh, Horror stories. Yeah. Mm, with basically. weird creatures. With weird creatures and Cthulhu. unseen threats and enemies and, and all that sort of thing. So um, Does I've, it have a scene in it where somebody says Cthulhu and somebody says Cthulhu you? And then the first person says, you Cthulhu you. You have to be careful what you say. These these Cthulhu enthusiasts can get a little bit touchy. Okay, we'll edit. So I'm waiting to see how much they hate my story. But anyway, <laughs> oh um, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it's out today. Uh, if you go to just giving or do a search for secret history, and um, there's some incredible artwork by John Swagger and by Stephen Tricky and loads of amazing Stephen stories. Stephen Tricky. Stephen Tricky. He got the cover for Cygnus Alpha. You and who else? Oh, he did. Yeah. He did. That's the first time I've mentioned that book on this mm. podcast, I think. I've been yeah. working at it solidly for the last he eight did months. Get, and can I just say that in the voting, I I abstained from voting for him. You're listening to the Blue Plug him. podcast. Yeah. For the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about our products. <laughs> I have to say, though, the five, because there are only five illustrations entered for the, com- you know, the competition for the yeah. cover... And all five of them were outstanding. Mm. They were, yeah. Mm. Easily, any of one of them could have been used. Yeah, yeah. it was like, I, you know, I tried various ones of them on the cover and they all look excellent. Mm. Mm. And it was, to be honest, it was a shame. It's a shame there isn't an option on the um, print-on-demand to choose your cover, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you could, yeah, I did think about that, but the trouble is the way Amazon works, mm. it wouldn't direct you to the individual Could books. you include no. them as, like, extra pages at the end so that people can still see the artwork? They're all in the book. They are in the book. Yeah. That's good. Good. Yeah. In fact, in order to do that, I needed seven illustrations in the book. (laughs) So I asked around and somebody came up with a sixth one, but nobody came up with a seventh one. So Muggins had to do it himself. (laughs) So anybody who gets a copy of this book is going to get a little drawing Mm. by me. That'd be interesting. To, <laughs> be interesting to see Simon's critique of your uh, artistic work. No, it's not worth oh, critique. It's it bloody awful. Mm. But at least it fills up a, what would otherwise have been a blank space. Mm. So, mm. what was your thing again, Simon? The Secret Invasion was it? Secret Invasion. Secret it's invasion. called. Yes. Have uh, you written in it? Yes. At yes, least it's all. It's all based around the West Country as well. How so. come I wasn't invited? This Weren't is the you? first I've heard of this. No, I'm yes. sure you were. No, the, no. The first I heard of it was the other day when you said come in later this week on Halloween. Oh, okay. and I'm like, okay, what? You're oh. listening to the Big Tiff podcast. This will be the last episode. Oh, and for the last fifteen minutes, we'll have been talking about Big Finish because <laughs> you probably have been too. <laughs> anyway, yeah, whatever. Tell, tells of Eldritch, I think it says of based in the West Country or something. Mm-hmm. See, Big Sisters of Mercy fan. Yeah, he would have yeah. right up his alley. God. There's going to be a second book. 
It's going to be another one next year. Hey, I'm not doing the sequels. <laughs> in the first one. Wow. Uh, but myself and Lee. Lee's written one in there as well. Mind you, I have to be honest, I'm not a Lovecraft fan, so... Well, mm. neither am I, but what I did know is from playing Call of Cthulhu back in the college days. See... And that's as much as I knew. I didn't even know that. I shouldn't say that, really. That'll upset people. Especially people who weren't invited to write for it. Not you! Like, <laughs> Lovecraft fans. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Anyway, uh, yes. Well, we were I'm very about, proud of it. Can I okay, just say? talking about Halloween and talking mm. about audio things. Oh, yes. Um, well, I was going to do this for Starburst, but thanks to a mix up, it's ended up not being for Starburst after all. I did an audio review oh, this week. Oh, on your Weebly site, wasn't it? I read that. Yeah, yeah I put it up on there because it wasn't going to get used. So, um, right, there's this company called the Wireless Theatre Company. Mm. What a great name, by mm. the way. Which is, right, I'm not entirely sure of the history of it, but it started several years ago. It's quite a big thing. They do loads of plays and stuff, and they're often on the BBC and that as well. And they have sponsors like Nicholas Parsons. For example, I think it started out as some kind of a collective just to give people an outlet for doing this stuff. And I think they mostly try and use um, new writers or uh, writers who don't have a lot of experience of mm. paid work or whatever yeah. to try and give people like a, a, step, in, a step in the door. Yeah. And then they'll have... You know, a lot of the actors will be fairly unknown actors as well, but I think in most of the things they do, they will always have top-of-the-range actors in there as well, mm. which gives everybody a big leg up, basically. Anyway, about three years or so ago, four years ago, they did, a couple of their writers did a thing called The um, Strange Case of Springheel Jack. Do you know Springheel Jack? Yeah. Yes. Right, which is this sort of pre-Jack the Ripper legend from mm. Victorian mm. England in the 19th century. Mm, exciting in Exeter. Oh, really? Mm. Well, these two writers kind of turned the sort of spring Jack sightings, took specific ones mm -hmm. and turned, uh, I think this is what I gather, and turned it into a three-episode, three 30-minute episode audio play in about 2012 mm -hmm. which is about this policeman who becomes involved in this thing and goes on the trail of spring Hill jack and then the following year late 2013 and early 2014 they did a second trilogy of three 40 minute episodes this time mm -hmm. the legend of spring Hill jack right which all came over a bit the nightmare man okay yeah and this year finally and it launched yesterday as we record this the day before halloween mm -hmm. The third series of three 30-minute episodes, which is the final series of three, which is going to explain who and what Spring Hill Jack is. Wraps it all up. But basically, it's just these series of audio plays, and they're pretty cheap on the website. It used to be free to download, but okay. I think in order to... They've got to cover their costs and stuff. Yeah, you can't run these things for free. Mm. It's ridiculous. So... Mm. It, so wireless theatre, you can either subscribe, in which case you get everything, and I don't think it's expensive, or you can buy individual things, okay. and they're dirt cheap. It's only like a quid 49 an episode, mm. which when you think you pay 89p for a three-minute song, yeah. you get a 30-minute mm. audio drama for not, not much, much more than yeah. half as much again. Mm. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. It's, it's not tongue-in-cheek, and it's not postmodern it's fairly sort of classical it's victorian police 
thing with a sort of supernatural twist. It's got decent performances, decent writing, decent audio design. If you like, if you like the Jago and Lightfoot adventures, yeah, the language is not that kind of ripe. Mm-hmm. The characterization characterization is not that kind of ripe, but it is of a very similar sort of ilk okay. to that sort of thing. It's pre late Victorian, so it precedes things like the Jack the Ripper stuff. Yeah. So it's not quite the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it has very much that similar feeling. So if you were, uh, well, if you like the sound of anything I've just said. Look up the Wireless Theatre Company, search out the Spring Hill Saga, and, you know, I'd probably recommend you download Episode 1 of Series 1 to give it a try first, mm-hmm. or even the whole of Series 1, because there's only three episodes, it still costs you less than a fiver. Yeah. Uh, but Series 3 is out, and it looks to be a great finish to the saga. But what they've really done is kind of taken archetypal types of story elements mm-hmm. and put them together in a way that if you like that kind of thing will satisfy you to yeah. the max as it were mm. so if you like your victorian era detective stuff and you like your supernatural stuff and you like fairly classy stories fairly classily told mm-hmm. they should be right up your street i got a film review to do as well shall i do that quickly and then we'll move on go on then. it's al pacino Al Pacino's pretty much retired. Shout out to my little friend. Yeah. That was... Put it away. About, <laughs> that was about the worst Al Pacino impressionation I've ever heard. Uh, Say hello to my little friend. God, blimey. You've been watching those Dolmio adverts. Yeah, it wasn't an awful lot better, was it? <clears throat> I used to be able to do that really well. But then that was like 30 years ago when that film came out. More of a De Niro man myself. Yeah, I don't In the early days, yeah, but latterly, no. Mm. Robert De Niro would just do any old tosh these days for a paycheck. Mm. Whereas Al Pacino's more or less retired. He does a film like, yeah. well, he does a project like once a year, mm-hmm. but sometimes it won't even be a film. So, I mean, on average, I think over the last 10 years, he's had a film about once every 18 months. And he did this film called Manglehorn for. Um, not new, but relatively unknown writers, relatively unknown director. And it's a quiet little small town story about a man who lost the love of his life. Like, I don't think it's specified how long ago. Oh, blimey. With a title like that, I thought it was about a laundry fetish. No. It's about a man who runs a locksmith. He's He's been on his own for 15 years, something like that. Because he lost the love of his life, still writes her a letter every day, even though you know she's obviously been dead for fifteen years, can't get over it. And essentially, there's across the several days that this film takes place, where you get a snapshot of his life. Hmm. It sort of tells three stories in tandem. Okay. One of which is involving a bank teller played by Holly Hunter, who oh, I love Holly Hunter. Yeah, who kind of brings him out of himself a bit. Another one is Harmony Corrine from from Kids. And no, okay, no, he plays a he plays a real sleazy wide boy type character. Mm-hmm. And this is that 
And then there's another story about his cat. It, right, he sold it to me on the cat. It's it's one of those things where because Al Pacino and Holly Hunter are in it, they bring a real class to it, mm. and it's got a really nicely low key directorial style, mm-hmm. which really makes a really decent film of it. And the script itself has got lovely dialogue and lovely characterization, but the plot, these three stories in tandem is rather clunky. So it's one of these things where, uh, you know, it's a proper, really good 8 out of 10 type film. Mm. Could have been a lot better if the script had been just that little bit less clunky on the story. Mm. But as it stands... But, yeah, I, I love 8 out of 10 films. Yeah. They're the ones you keep coming back to. Mm. It's, it's one of those sort of, I don't know, it's one of those sort of local hero kind of, I don't know, one of those films where it's just a quiet film that you probably don't have great expectations about and it's just lovely Mm. and there's two scenes in there and i'm not going to spoil what happens in them for anybody who does go out and watch the film there's two scenes in there one is the very last thing in the entire film which kind of pushes it into starburst territory except not really and there's another scene earlier on that is one of those classic um i don't know if it was gregory's girl the penguin walking down the corridor right Mm. It, it is it's not remotely like that <laughs> but it equates to that kind of thing something unexpected but lovely a bit mm. like the channel 4 program teachers where they'd have just random stuff going on in the background that you wouldn't really equate with <clears throat> a regular story that sort of thing I never saw teachers oh it's really good but do you mean England. in the same way as Gregory's girl did yeah it just have so a, they ripped it all off you'd Gregory's have, you'd girl you'd have a random donkey on a on a school roof for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> that sounds a bit forced to me. I don't know. It depends how it's. Yeah. Mm. Was it was it forced or was it good? It was great. Teachers was a brilliant series. Okay, fair enough. Right, reviews over. Let's talk mm. about Doctor Who. Yes. We have got a bunch of emails. We will come to them later mm. if we have time. Okay, am I going to lead the way here? Don't mind. I'll throw an idea out, and then we'll... Unless you want to do the... What did you think before we throw the idea out? Okay then, Mark, what did you think? I found it quite enjoyable. Uh, There's Mark, typically on the fence. He found it (laughs) quite enjoyable. Go on then, Simon. For the most, I thought it was stunning. Mm Mm-hmm. And... I will say that I think it ranged a bit too far and wide to feel consistent. Yeah. But other than that, it was almost exceptional. Mm. I think if there had been a bit more humour in it, it would perhaps have been... It's difficult to see where humour could have fit, but it did, after the last few weeks, it did feel very bereft of it. Do you know what? We had a couple of chuckles, and that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, but they were really good chuckles. Mm. Really good chuckles. There was that little bit of delivery from Capaldi. But yeah. <laughs> that really made me laugh. I can't remember what he said, but the way he said it was just so funny. Yeah. Dr. Funkenstein did it for me. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, that was a good line as well. I, I kind there was of... very little of that, wasn't mm. there? I, it felt like a spicy salami sausage. Well, it felt like, tasted like. Are we still talking about the episode now, Simon? <laughs> But then it kind of there was there was a point where it, the taste kind of tailed off a bit, and then it picked up again. 
And yeah. It was almost like when it veered back into normal Doctor Who territory, as in modern Doctor Who territory, mm. of trying to pull on people's emotions. And uh, I think you can probably guess some stereotypically. The twist that, was exceptional. Mm. Very good. Very yeah. good. The the bit. I don't want to focus on the the stuff that I didn't think worked quite so well, but well, why not? Let's do the stuff that didn't work quite yeah, so well, and then we'll get on to well the bit with the soldiers. Where, where mm. you know, I I like the fact that the person who was going to launch the missile strike suddenly saw her, her family down there. That was lovely. Yeah. That was oh, lovely. Unexpected. Great. Yeah. Mm. But then it was almost like it was too much in your face and didn't. It was all like all these. Hey, well, it didn't honestly, quite it could, need the same thing to happen again with him. No, on the no, no, and it and affecting all the soldiers at once, where they all go, "Oh yeah, we all go inside the building. It's all go inside the building because they well, look like." Well, if he's their commander, and, then. But okay, then again, okay. his commanders round the back of the maybe building. Maybe it wasn't it played. Been... Maybe on the written page, it probably worked a lot better. So I understand why it why it was there. Yeah, actually, sometimes once you get out to a location, if it. If in the script it says they're all outside, he makes a decision and yeah. they're in before she can stop them. Yeah, that looks great on paper. Actually, trying to put it on screen where you've got like fifteen people standing out the front of a building to get them through that door before the woman at the other side of the building. I know. Go on, um, and there was this really, you know, intense uh, scene between, like you say, the commander and what was supposedly his mother, mm-hmm. and all these other people standing around the side while it was all going on. Yeah. So it kind of, in that respect, didn't it work. Would, yeah, it probably would have worked really well so in that prose. So that is yeah. probably yeah. my only gripe. Mm. I thought, I didn't think there was anything that didn't work. No. And you didn't particularly like Rebecca Front. No. I thought she was fine, see. Okay. As an actress... As we, myself and Mark were talking, yeah. yeah, I think she's great. I've loved the, I love the comedy stuff she does. She's as from well. that sort of Armando Iannucci stable, yeah, and uh, she's been in some really good stuff. And the thing is, although she's kind of probably known more for comedy, mm. she also does serious straight oh, drama. Yeah, she played. She's it. Lewis's yeah. boss. She, she played it like this, and has been for the last <laughs> ten years. Yeah, but the point yeah. about being Lewis's boss mm. is, unlike, say, for example, you threw Rufus Hound in. In a serious Ooh. part. Mm. And okay, the wise thing was they didn't throw him in a serious part, so when he did mm. the serious bit, it worked. Mm. But if you try and throw Rufus Hound in a serious part... Ooh. But if you try and throw <laughs> Rufus... If you try and throw Rufus Hound in a serious part, mm. you have a real problem trying to get people to suspend their disbelief for it. Yeah. But because most of the people who watch Doctor Who yeah. are more likely to have seen Lewis than they are the thick of it... Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's already sold as an actress. Yeah, no, that wasn't yeah. my issue at all. I just didn't, uh, it didn't put into a role of command. I mean, I could maybe I could say the same thing about um, uh, uh, Stuart, Kate Stewart, Kate yeah. Stewart. But but I kind well, of no, works I think for she me sells because... it. I think she sells it. Whereas I, you know, I I really like uh, Rebecca Front, uh, but I just not. Sure, it worked. She needed to bring the bitch a bit more. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And she it. can do that. Yeah. We know she can do mm. that. Yeah. And maybe that's what it was. There wasn't mm. quite enough of that. No. Because although she was giving it a little bit of that, mm. she was also giving it a little bit of the nice. Mm. Yeah, she was. And, mm, yeah. you know, you've already got Kate Stewart doing that. So yeah. you don't need that. Thank you. I couldn't articulate that. That's exactly what it was. No, yeah. yeah. Good point, moment. So, yeah, but I, th- I thought she was fine. I didn't think there was anything I'd take issue with in the episode. I didn't mm. think so. I... Oh, you said about there could have been a bit more comedy, but it's very difficult to try and 
get that in without. Yeah, because it was a, such an intense episode that mm. uh, when there was humour, it kind of it, it shone. That said, the line about them uh, stealing the um, benefits was very good, quite amusing. Yeah, you know, this is what I was about to say. Is I don't think there's. Um, I don't think there's a lack of obvious humour mm. because of the tone of it. Because yeah. mm. I think Doctor Who mm. manages to straddle that line very well. Mm. I think the reason there's not so much obvious humour in is because most of the humour that was in there is very much more subtle and mm. is not directed at making people laugh but making them think. Yeah. Well, it's satirical. Mm. Well, that's it. And, you know, it was quite obviously satirical. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we need to go into that in any great detail because no, really. it was all there no, to be no, seen. It's pretty yeah. obvious, really. Um, the one thing I don't like about that is that when a writer is that obviously satirical, they're kind of giving you their opinion mm. as opposed to allowing you to form your own. And I will always prefer to be allowed to form my own opinion. You know, even if I'm in complete agreement. Oh, but the doctor's comments were an observation as opposed to an opinion. I'm not talking about the comments, I'm talking about the story. Okay, mm. alright. The story itself is just an obvious parallel with the situation Refugee in the Middle East. Crisis, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, completely and utterly. Mm. So, uh, you know, it, did, it wasn't even in the dialogue, it was just in the story. It was just there, right in front of your face. Yeah, no, absolutely, which I thought was so good about it. That's why I loved it. It was so brave in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, it was obvious, but it needed to be for this sort of audience. But I think it worked. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Well, this is the point I was going to make before we started saying... Mm. Mm. I was going to say, what is it now, 40 years ago? Mm. It's 40 years this year, isn't it? You had Terror of the Zygons, which is a little story, which doesn't yeah. accomplish anything. Mm. But because it's so beautifully written, the dialogue mm. is what really sells. And because the location is yeah. so beautifully evoked, and because... The design of the creatures is such a classic design, and because they got fantastic actors in, because that's what they were doing during the Hinchcliffe era, mm. all those things sold a very slight story into classic status. And the trouble with that is, when you come back to a classic 40 years down the line, and I don't know, I've not seen it yet, but I have a feeling that this is where Terminator Genesis fell at the first pass. It's too difficult to move beyond the classic mm. and you probably too much enthralled to it. This is why I thought, actually talking of the Terminator films, this is why I thought the third one was better than the second one because rather than repeating it, it did something different. You just liked it because they were an attractive lady wandering around killing people, didn't you? Well, the third Terminator. Yeah, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. That was the uh, female Terminator. Mm. Oh, I didn't find her attractive. Hmm. Certainly wasn't my type, Mark. Wow, shiny. <clears throat> <clears throat> Mark always brings it back to that thing that <laughs> sentence unfinished. Yeah. So 40 years on from Terror of the Zygons, mm. if you'd have said to any Doctor Who fan, Zygon sequel, what are they going to say? Small Scottish village, or maybe mm. a small Welsh village. And they would repeat the elements of the first one. Because with the sequel, 
the biggest temptation is always to repeat the elements of the first one. Mm -hmm. Terror of the Zygon, Terror of the Zygons, Terror of the Autons, and Spearhead from Space. Terror of the Autons is like Terminator 2. It's just the first one with great big knobs on. Mm. Peter Harness instead has gone to the Zygons and has said, right, okay, let's strip away all the elements of the first one, all the things that made the first one fantastic, and what was the idea in a nutshell? And he said, right, Let's take the idea and strip away everything else and see what we can do with the idea. And so Peter Harness has actually taken the Zygons and done something completely and utterly brand new with them. Mm. I mean, that goes without saying, right? He's also uh, riffing off the day of the obviously the outcome oh, yeah. of the day of the Doctor. Surely mm. that's I mean that's your launch. Well, yes, point. he is, but yeah. I mean he could and perhaps would have told a story like this anyway, regardless, okay. because you don't yeah. need the day of the Doctor in order for this to be a situation that's happened. Mm, in as much as it gives a level playing field where there's a situation where there can be this... So what I mean is, right. you can start this story yeah. by saying, three years ago, Zygons appeared on Earth, okay, yeah. and we brokered a piece whereby 20 million Zygons were assimilated into the population. It's like at the end of The Hungry Earth, mm. we don't find out what happens to the Silurians. Mm. Because you don't need to, because the story's not about what happens to the Silurians. It's about getting to the point where they're talking. Yeah. And this starts up from the point at which they have been assimilated. So you don't need to see the conversation that happened in order to facilitate the assimilation. Mm. The story can exist without that. You know, something like, what was that film in 1988? Um, the one with the aliens on Earth. Oh, um... Oh, um... James Carnes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what was it called? Yeah. <laughs> Alien Nation. Alien Nation, that's the yeah. one. Yeah. See, you don't need to have had a prequel to Alien Nation to find out where the no. aliens come from. No. no. This, it's already been established. Yeah. yeah. This is Alien Nation with Zygons mm. for their post-ISIS generation. Yeah, okay. Which is an idea that writes itself. Yeah. But then, and and this is where I was getting to originally, once you've come up with that, then the big question then is, how do you format this for the series? What tone do you go for? And once you've got your theme, what's your ambiance? Mm. And, for example, two weeks ago we had The Girl Who Died, and the ambiance of that story could have been completely different. They could have done the Vikings, very gritty and realistic, mm -hmm. but instead they romanticised them and made a, a, not quite a Monty Python, as everybody's been saying, but something that edged more towards... Vicky the Viking. Yeah, and, it, <laughs> and that worked Ooh. because you have to suspend your disbelief for yeah. non-gritty Vikings. I thought it was this... important to have a story like that as well, just to kind of vary the tone a bit because if you just have just nothing to show but that Doctor Who can do that exactly yeah mm -hmm. and just bring a bit of fun back into it as well and this is the complete antithesis to yeah. that yeah. this is okay I've come up with and this is perhaps the one not error but or even error of judgement but this is perhaps the one bit that I would have had differently mm -hmm. his tone and this is all about the idea is obvious I mean it's obvious with hindsight as mm. most brilliant ideas are. But the idea is, to an extent, obvious. So what's more important than your idea is the tone you choose to tell it. And because he's chosen this tone, 
where he's kind of got this, the story's telling itself. Rather than him telling the story, the story's telling itself. Mm -hmm. And so because the st if he was telling the story, he could tell it with bags of comedy and bags of Doctor Who type stuff. But because the story's telling itself, all that Doctor Who stuff goes missing. All that comedy goes missing because it gets edged out by the story that's telling itself. I don't know if I've put that very well, but do you understand the distinction I've made? Mm. Once you've settled on the idea that the story is going to have this tone whereby it's the story rather than the dialogue that's making the illusions, mm. then you edge out the dialogue that could have been jokey, that could yeah. have been... Yeah. Yeah. And so you lose a bit in character as well, mm. because there are lots of scenes with lots of different people in that episode, but you never really got to find out anything about those people. Those two girls. Yeah. And the police the officer well. in the station. Yeah. I don't think you needed to, though. No, you didn't need to because the story had taken on that extra dimension. Yeah, okay. So um, the story was suffocating everything else. That was really dark as well. They Some very dark they, stuff. Yeah, they abduct the little boy and drag him off to the lift. That's, mm. Mm. But you see what I mean about the story suffocating everything else? Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's like everything else becomes one-dimensional in service to this huge juggernaut of a story. And I'm not saying this as a complaint, say, because yeah, that works it'll, perfectly it'll less well. Enjoyable. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like Doctor Who. Mm. No, no. But then we've done podcasts before focusing on stories like um, Lee mm. picked out um, Seeds of Doom. And uh, Inferno. that's one of his favourite Doctor yeah, Who Inferno stories. But like you've Doctor said before, yeah. it doesn't feel like classic Doctor Who. It feels like an action programme, but you know, for a lot of people, it's their favourite story. Well, a lot of people, I've said this before, a lot of people will pick an atypical story as their mm, favourite yeah. because it stands out. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, and yes, it's great. And yes, Doctor Who can and should and will and does do things that don't feel like Doctor Who. Mm. And, you know, given that criteria, it, this was a brilliant episode. Just... You know, I said this two weeks ago, I prefer the slightly more quirky ones. Mm, mm. So while I thought this was brilliant, it's not something that I could love. Oh, really? Okay. Perhaps. Mm. I felt last week's story left me feeling a bit flat. We're going to ask you about it. this later, Mark. Mm. So you can come back and tell us about how flat it made you feel <laughs> later once you've stopped talking about your penis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take a look at my little friend. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've all done it. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. So I only know because it's sampled in a big old dynamite record. Yeah. That's the only reason I know it. Yeah, mm. yeah no, I, I think it's good to change it up a bit. And I think the variety of stories this year has been pretty decent on the whole. Do you know what this felt to me like? And I hate to say this because I love Toby Warehouse and generally I love his stories, but this felt like what that story should have felt like. Mm. And specifically that first episode. That first episode was great on one level, but on another level, and I said this in the review, and I, this is why I only gave it seven when everybody else was raving about mm -hmm. that first episode. On another level, it was really unsuccessful. Toby Weirhouse's story had lots of clues that the audience wouldn't have been able to work out. Yeah. Whereas mm. this, that twist... Yeah. Yes. When Clara... Is there right in your face the whole time. It is. Do you know what was really clever, and mm. something I noticed, was that you were saying about it, there was this, uh, like a single flavour running through the whole thing, which didn't allow for character and things like mm -hmm. that. Was that, was that part that we, it got really intense 
and you had that clip with Osgood and the two Zygons and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Honestly, my blood ran cold mm. um, for obvious reasons because it is so close to home because it is. It does play on this whole f- climate of fear and paranoia that we have, um, which is why I just thought it was brilliant. But, mm. um, oh, it was and then, brilliant. And then, and then Clara turns up and all of a sudden there's the Clara theme and all that sort of thing. And I was thinking, God, that's quite jarring. Mm. Um, and then, you, of course, you realise that that's just setting you up for yeah. a, a real... Well, not at that point. But yeah, eventually. Mm. Eventually, it does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that pays off. Yeah, it was that. That was slightly weird. It, there were a few moments that felt slightly weird, mm. but in the end, what it felt like was what it felt like was three tributaries running into a river, mm. and each time you go to a different tributary, the tone changes slightly mm. for that tributary. Mm. And as they get closer to the river, they get wider and wider, and the sort of tone melts away until they all flow into one. Sure, that's bloody clever, though. If you think about it, oh yeah. No, 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 if you go back and think about it, just that the thing of using Clara's theme. Mm-hmm. If you watch it again, you're thinking, oh, they're applying Clara's theme to something somebody that's not Clara. Yeah. Well, she still was at that point. She didn't get changed until after that. Okay, didn't she. Uh, that was the first time we see. Oh it. yeah. Oh no, you're right. You're right. Oh well, that's. <laughs> well, you can, you, you can use that one. That's your idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, it still works to an extent mm. because it still signals up. Here's Clara. Yeah, who it, it, yeah settles you into a full sense of security. Yeah, because it says yeah. here's Clara, yeah. and the Clara theme, and particularly the version of it they used, is very light. Yes. Mm. So it says here's Clara, who is going to throughout this dark story. He's going to be your. Oh no, she's not. Mm. I thought the score on this one was really good. Um, I don't know whether it's a bad sign that it stood out as much as it did to me anyway when I was watching it, but um, I really liked it. It was very diverse, the score on yeah. this one. Yeah. Do you know what? I like the way the universe, that unit was portrayed in this as well, because mm. sometimes you can watch it, Made and it feels a, a little for... bit like people playing soldiers. Yeah. And th- this was really good. I mm. thought it was quite. Um, yeah. I hate the word gritty, but it did. It felt. <laughs> it was a realism. Like, it felt like they meant business. Yeah, yeah a realism and, about it. Yeah, which is why probably why it put Rebecca Front into contrast. Yeah, it felt kind of, like. Um, I don't think it did her any favours putting that um, armoured helmet on her head because it didn't look particularly right somehow. Mm. It felt like uh, a grown-up version of the Enemy of the World. Maybe mm. it's Doctor yeah. Who doing politics, mm. but unlike Enemy of the World, where it was very much for children, this felt like it was politics for grown ups and Doctor Who for children, mm. you know. Mm. And this is, I think, this is the best way that Doctor Who works. Mm. If you throw in a story that can appeal to grown ups, but you still have monsters and stuff, yeah. mm. or last week you still have highwaymen, and if you still have jokes, mm. I think the kids. And I, this probably sounds patronising. It's not meant to be. I think kids can run on monsters and jokes as long as there are monsters and jokes. Yeah. And then you can tell as grown up a story as you want. But mm. if there's a fire breathing lion man and a and a you know a, a slightly <laughs> crap highwayman who's bound for the noose, yeah. Kids are going to lap it up anyway. Yeah, yeah. And obviously I'm generalising about kids. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Up until a certain age, you don't really follow the story anyway. No, you follow the pieces of, of the story. Yeah. yeah. That bit in the playground. Sorry, I'm just... That bit in the playground where the kids mm. were snatched and that was mm. really quite... Yeah, yeah. 
But once you get to the age of 10 or 12 and you start to follow stories, if the story that you're being given is something quite grown up... I mean, mm. also outside of the Doctor Not Who every universe. one, but occasionally, then it, it, that, yeah. that sort of engenders in you a liking for more intelligent mm. stuff when you, as you do start to find other things outside of Doctor Who that to yeah. like. Go on, Mark, sorry. Yeah, but like I was going to say... Not I, like you never interrupt me. Never get a word in edgeways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, just looking at it from uh, sort of outside of the Doctor universe, you see, you know, a quite a relatively old person hanging about on a children's playground, playing on the swings and following kids around, and it's quite. Oh, well, that shot was a reference to the nineteen seventy eight invasion of the Body Snatchers. All mm. oh, right, well, hence Robert Duvall on that a big swing, stole, didn't it? Later yeah, on. yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. The end of the episode is very mm. much invasion of the body. Mm. Yeah, the 1978 version starts with Robert Duvall on a swing in a children's playground, mm. and then moves on from there. I love that panning shot. Yeah, that mm. panning shot where you saw the place title. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous. Mm. And then on the other side of it, there's the doctor. Yeah, because you're thinking, okay, the doctor's parked near a playground, but he's obviously gone off somewhere else, mm-hmm. and we're about to find out where. Oh, there he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, it worked beautifully. It was, mm. Again, the whole series has been beautifully directed. Mm. There's been a few clunky moments from yeah, because they're all almost all of them are people who are new to Doctor Who, mm. and even if not, I mean, Hetty McDonald had done Blink. Had she done anything else, or was that it? I think it was Blink. I think it was just that because doing Doctor Who is different from doing any other kind mm. of television, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doctor's guitar. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> no, can I just say, I thought they've kind of hit it just right. It Where it came into this, the, the, the episode today, mm. um, it suddenly felt like, so it felt right in as much as it was a Doctor's meditation. Well, what you've it got... Very, it made it me think of the TV me. movie. Yeah, it worked for me last week. It felt natural last week, whereas before it's... Seemed a bit kind of showing off. Yeah, well, just I kind think, of shoehorned in. Yeah. What I think people forget is that that first series with Peter Capaldi was about a doctor who didn't know who he was. No. And then he finds himself in that I'm the idiot with the box mm. speech where mm. he realizes who he is and goes back to, can get back to being the doctor. Mm. Yeah. And all the doctors, pretty much, I mean, to a greater or lesser degree, mm. have had certain quirks. Yeah. And, you know, it's obvious to say, you had Patrick Troughton with yeah, his recorder, recorder yeah. Yeah. but you had the fifth doctor with his cricket. It doesn't need to be a musical instrument. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a sport. It doesn't need to be this, that, or the other. Jelly babies. Modern jelly babies. Modern Doctor Who has done a thing, and it's not been particularly obvious, but David Tennant's doctor, for example, mm-hmm. would, when Mickey came into the TARDIS, don't worry about the football, I can get it on here. Mm-hmm. Modern Doctor Who has taken certain quirks of the past that might have been just a little bit middle class Mm. and has said, we can do that in a more working class way. And doing the guitar feels like doing the recorder in a more working class Mm. way. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not working class, a more universal way. But it also felt like 
the uh, funny enough, the Seventh Doctor at the beginning of the TV movie with his re- when he's got the music on, yeah. he's sitting there. It mm. felt like this, that same feeling. It's of, if you're going to have a he's doctor passing time in the TARDIS. Well, and yeah. also this is it's his wh- home rather than just. And know, this is why, space. because you've got Clara, who's a companion mm. who doesn't go in the TARDIS all the time. You know, it would not feel realistic to a modern audience to imagine that when Clara steps out of the TARDIS, the Doctor then spends two weeks sitting in the console room, looking at the console, waiting for her to come back. Mm. The Doctor is going to have something to occupy him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always going to be going to an alien planet Mm -hmm. and solving an adventure without Clara. Sometimes it's just going to be something that he can turn his mind and his hands to that doesn't take him out of the TARDIS, Mm -hmm. but just occupies him in the meantime. Mm. If you're a person who has a job... You go out and do your job of work. I'll do that, yeah, when I start. And then when yeah. you come home, say, if you're a single person, you come home to an empty house. Mm-hmm. If you're not a single person, there will be times when you come home to an empty house. What do you do when you get in that house? You don't sit there staring at the wall waiting for somebody to turn up, yeah. waiting to go back to work the next day. You amuse You yourself. put the telly on. Yeah. Or if you're musical, you play your guitar. Exactly, yeah. Or if you're into, I don't know, playing chess, you'll turn the computer on and play chess against the computer or against somebody in Az- Azerbaijan or somewhere, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? Mm. People have a life outside of the fiction. Yeah. And by having the doctor mm. playing the guitar... All you're showing is that he is a more three-dimensional character than otherwise he would be being portrayed as. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of other stuff along those lines as well that this episode brought up. Uh, Oh, before we do go on, I just wanted to say about Clara, Clara, about Jenna Coleman's acting in the Mm -hmm. scene where she has to... Mm -hmm. Because I think she's a fantastic actress anyway, and she's done some amazing things Mm -hmm. in Doctor Who. But I think that moment where she sells to the audience that she's a Zygon just before anybody else spots it was astonishing. Well, it certainly worked for me. It reminded me a little bit of the Doctor turning around and walking away from Davros and Davros has his back to him and a smile comes across his face mm-hmm. in the uh, Witcher's Familiar. Yeah. It was that moment where, mm. as the member of the audience, you get to work it out just before everybody yeah. else does. Yeah. No, that was a brilliant moment. Yeah. Um, so, specific things then, because often in this podcast we get so wrapped up in talking about themes and stuff, we mm. forget mm. specific things. A lot of people had predicted that this was going to be set before Death in Heaven. Mm. And yeah. so you'd be able to have the two Osgoods, yeah. or an Osgood that was the human Osgood before Osgood had died. And I said... I think I said on our preview podcast, I did not think that was going to happen mm. because it's difficult to sell that to an audience mm. who mm. aren't, you know, yeah. as constant as given, given as much concentration yeah. to Doctor Who as we do. The average person dipping into it ain't. Yeah, and the, and the characters, uh, Clara and the Doctor, have got to react to Osgood in a way that says, "Oh, we know you're going to die, but we're not going to." Well, it's like yeah. a, I've always said about, for example, the Cybermen back in the '60s. You know, the next time you see them. For the audience, has to be the next time after the last time, regardless of where in their timeline it takes Mm. place. Mm. And then there's that moment where the Doctor asks her, which one are you? And Oh, yeah, I was about to get to that. He's asking the the question the audience wants to know, basically. Well, a million fanboys 
a million fanboys, 127 fanboys, <laughs> and, girls. and suddenly, girls. Uh, suddenly going, <laughs> no, 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 when when I said what I'm about to say, you'll go, no, it's boys, <laughs> are going, oh, typical bloody Moffat cop-out, he's let her live again, because the doctor thinks it's the human Osgood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but, then, of course, yeah. she punctures that yeah. immediately, before that light bulb was even formed over <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. No, what was brilliant about that was that they left it hanging. Yeah, well, it's up to the viewer to decide. Yeah, no, uh, the only thing I was thinking about, this thing about whether they need to keep the original alive, is the fact that for some reason they're keeping all the other people alive. No, they're not, though. That's the thing. She said it. They don't anymore. They don't need to anymore. Mm. No, but at the end, you've got all those pods, and they're putting the people in pods. Why are they doing that? So the soldiers can come in and shoot a lot of them and blow the place up. That was the whole point of yeah, the cliffhanger. It's a trap. All these people inside there are going to just destroy the themselves. Country, you know? yeah, why do they bother putting them in pods? What do you mean? Well, they're obviously keeping the people oh. alive. That's what I'm saying. Well, they weren't keeping them alive. They were just keeping them. They were just mm. prisons. And like any other prison, Zygon technology is all about you know things that grow organically. Mm. So mm. those are just organically grown okay, prison well, cells. They, they appeared like some kind of stasis pod, that's all. Well, it looked like that, but I mean, that's kind of the point of the trap, isn't it? You go in there and you think there's lots of people in there who need saving. Oh, I suppose up to that point, it could be like they, they were in the original Zygon story where they're keeping the people alive and they're saying about, I suppose, all the time they're trying to keep this uh, facade going, then they will need them alive. More information. More information, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, and it goes back to what I said Back uh, when we started talking about it, 40 years on, Mm, we've moved on. And like I say about those Cyberman stories, each time you see the Cybermen, they need to have moved on, regardless of whether it's earlier or later in Mm -hmm. their timeline. And here, 40 years on from the last Zygon story, for an audience, you've got to accept that Zygon technology will have moved on, even if these Zygons are actually supposedly from somewhere earlier in... Mm. Zygon history yeah. so it, and it's like I said when we were talking about the Daleks when I said you know those old chassis are still on yeah. the go in spite of the fact that new ones have superseded mm-hmm. them it all comes down to the writer looks at the material and says in spite of it being fantastic and not realistic mm-hmm. let's imbue it with a bit of realism yeah. so if we're seeing Zygons 40 years on then we want them to have advanced 40 mm-hmm. years in terms of technology. Yeah. So the fact that they don't need the originals anymore, they might want to keep the originals because they think there's still something to get out of them, but they don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. That just feels like a proper natural development. Yeah. And also facilitates a brilliant twist in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, As opposed to a, a new ability, uh, this mm-hmm. ability of being able to draw... It's a proper extrapolation yeah. of what was going on. Yeah. Before we started recording, Simon, you said that and just sorry just before i move on from that point Mm. it's an extrapolation of what went on before that some people might see as heresy but no more heretical than seeing the daleks in the chase being able to move about without static electricity you know this series is contradict anything that's gone before no it just supersedes it it. yeah yeah go on then mark no i remember simon was saying about uh he felt there was a moment where it was a little bit clunky in mm. terms of dropping in a an info, well, not an info dump, but, you know, insert series catchphrase here. Yeah, yeah. Hybrid. Hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's getting to the point, well, it, when it first mentioned it, 
Mm. You thought, where's this going? And the mm. thing about Stephen Moffat is... He's playing a long game, isn't he? You know? No, 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 that's not the thing about Stephen Moffat. The mm. thing about Stephen Moffat is he'll throw things in, but they won't all point towards episode mm. 12 or mm. episode 13 if it's a 13-episode series. Sometimes he'll throw things in and address them. And the thing about the hybrid was it was possible that talk about a hybrid was just foreshadowing the fact that a shielder was going to be given this gift of immortality. Mm. And so the talk of hybrid could have been dropped after that. So Mm. while it might have been clunky to drop it in, Mm. actually what it did was tell you that the hybrid you've already seen is still foreshadowing for the one that's yet to come Mm. rather than being the point of where that foreshadowing was leading in the first place. Mm. So actually it did need to be there. Yeah, it was the way it was done. Uh, yeah, it sounded like the doctor was making a big deal about it. Yeah, well, he may deal. have been because the way he said it, you got the because Peter Capaldi is a clever actor, and you got the feeling he knows what's coming up later in the series, presumably when they're mm. shooting this. The way he said it, it was as if the inference the audience is supposed to get is not just that he said a word that's been a buzzword for the series that's going to lead somewhere but that he realises that himself. Mm-hmm. So it's like the doctor logging that there's something going on yeah. that involves some kind of a hybrid mm-hmm. and where that's going. There's a deleted people... scene that we got in the car just before the going to the aeroplane. and The the hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my joke to it. That joke yeah. was worthy of Mark. Oh, thank you. And he's only trying to be lit. Really let me tell it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what fuel does this take? <laughs> but I mean a few people have predicted that the Doctor himself is a hybrid and that's where this series is mm-hmm. heading okay I'm not well, no he's not half human surely yeah that's what people are predicting yeah oh, okay so that, that because they think because Stephen Moffat likes to uh, iron out the kinks of the past tie up loose ends and so if that's a loose end that needs tying up. Mm. And in the TV movie, it's the master who says it, not the doctor. Yeah. So it's not like one of those things where Tom Baker says, you know, uh, the inside of the TARDIS is, what's the word he uses in Pyramids of Mars? You can't shoot weapons in here because it's... Uh, oh, state, state of temporal grace. grace. Temporal grace. Mm. He could have been lying when he said that, just to mm. stop somebody from attempting to shoot a gun or whatever. Mm. Was it Pyramids of Mars? No, it was something I else. Don't know. I don't know. It could have been a lie. Mm. But because it's the master who says it in the TV movie, it's not the Doctor lying. Mm. So, you know, that is canon. So some people think maybe this is Stephen Moffat going to do a story arc that irons out that kink in the series' past, as well as ironing out the other kink, which is what was brought up, basically brought up in the Sylvester McCoy years, why did the Doctor leave Gallifrey in the first Mm. place and why was he more important than the other Time Lords? because that is essentially what was being said during the Sylvester McCoy years. Mm. We know Stephen Moffat likes the Sylvester McCoy years, hence, you know, a fez and a mop, etc., etc. So it could be that Stephen Moffat has decided to round out a story that was started but never finished when Sylvester McCoy was the Doctor and iron out the kink in the TV movie at the same time in one fell sweep. And cement the link with with Earth. As to why he keeps coming back to Well, play. yeah. 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 Mm. I don't think he needs to. I don't have an issue with it, if I'm honest. Well, if he does, then so be it. As long as it's not so fan-wanky that a general audience <laughs> doesn't get it. But then he doesn't do things like that. 
When he no. does things that are really fan wanky, he does them in a way that a general audience, mm-hmm. like the Davros story at the start of this year. Yeah. You know, I had so many people say, oh, but if you've not seen Genesis, you wouldn't be able to understand this. What bit of it wouldn't you be able to understand? It was told in a way where you didn't need to have seen Genesis. Mm. So that doesn't ring true with me. He's not, he is, Stephen Moffat is not doing it in a way that is only in service to people who know the classic series. What he's doing is he's, and this is what I always say, he does things for the fans who know the classic series but he does it in a way that disguises that so that a general audience can appreciate it too. And I think that's why some of the fans from the classic series don't like it. Because of that disguise, they think he's being irreverent towards it. Mm. When actually, it is incredibly irreverent <laughs> just to do it in the first place. Oh, oh God. There's a little picture of Bill Hartnell, wasn't there? Did I yes. see that on the, yeah. on the stairs? Yeah. Oh, was there? Yeah. I don't think there's ever been anyone kind of worked with the show who's been quite so you know reverential, reverential yeah. yeah towards yeah. the right before you brought up the hybrid thing and took mm. me off my train of thought uh, what were we talking about because I was halfway through a train of thought Mark and you derailed it again oh well, I thought you finished your point you always do that and I try and stop you from interrupting but you won't let me well I thought you know you'd gone on for long enough give the listeners a bit of a break instead of complaining about how I go on (laughs) why don't you try and remind me of what it was that I was halfway through talking about (sighs) what were we talking about what were you used about we're trying to find little bits and pieces that had uh... no 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 there's one specific one that we were talking about what was it it was the thing about God, this is going to make great listening. Osgood? Could have been... We were talking about Osgood. Yeah. I'll probably come back to this next week instead then. And you were saying about the... the, Yeah. The explanation that she could be a Zygon or not. And it was kind of left open. Yeah. I can't remember what it was. Let's move on. (laughs) If I remember, we'll come back to it next week. Or even later tonight. Who knows? Yeah. Should we? Um, is there anything else? Can we think of off the tops of our heads? That it's we probably loads because it was a quite a thick, mm. full-on episode. Mm. If you ask me, there wasn't a lot. Although I'm glad that there wasn't a uh, next time trailer. Yeah. Um, yeah. The last thing you needed was to get to the ep- end of that episode yeah. and yeah. see the Doctor running around in the yeah, next just time. Yeah, build up the anticipation mm. for the next mm. episode. The Doctor was having a good play though. I liked the getting on the plane. And mm. giving the V signs and everything like that. That was mm. great. Mm. Really good. And they just <laughs> just kind of getting used to it, aren't they? Just like, yeah. oh God, he's going on again. Well, this is Doctor who's really come out of his shell since the end of Death yeah, and Heaven. Yeah, yeah. This was the Doctor he promised to be. And I think, I think a lot of people probably think of Series 8 being, as a mistake, being the series where it's before he's find, found himself. And then he does. And now he turns into the Doctor who perhaps... They would have liked to have seen from the start. Do you know what I love about it is he's got to an age where he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, basically. Because <laughs> that's basically where I'm getting to now. Well, that's why he's portraying. Yeah. He's just... And I suppose it looks like midlife crisis, but I don't think... But I think that difference here is it's not midlife crisis because he's been born into a new regeneration cycle. It's less midlife crisis than just new lease of life. Mm, mm. And so he's just having fun with it at the moment. Yeah. And he's entertaining himself. Mm. Should we should we score it? Go on then. Even though it's only the first half. Yeah, it's always uh, a tricky one to do, the first part. 
You're both looking at me, so I assume I'm going to go first. Well, then. yeah, because you start talking, Mark. Okay, I We am... look at people when they're talking. <laughs> okay, well, this is, in my opinion, the strongest one so far this season, and I am going to give it a nine. Okay, shame on. I have to agree with Mark. I think, sister, I honestly, uh, if I'm being completely honest, none of the episodes have grabbed me in the way that last se- season did. I really, I just haven't got it. Even the Dalek one, as great as it was, didn't kind of grab me by the throat. It wasn't quite there. No, but this did. Mm. This absolutely sucked me in. And I I think Peter Harness deserves a 10. But because of Well, we'll find out next week. I hate this. Mm. I hate because I wanted to give it a 10. Really wanted to give it a 10. And I also have to give it credit in as much as I was really looking forward to this. When I heard the basic description of it being quite political and having the Zygons and all that sort of thing, I felt like there was something in the air and I really looked forward to it. And usually that's the negative thing because you, you have high expectations. But no, I was really <clears throat> impressed by it. And I want to give it a 10, but I'm going to have to give it a 9 because it's... Because we haven't had part two yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's that, yeah, and I felt like it slipped into old Doctor Who habits when it didn't need to. Yeah, that's... Yeah, then I felt that there were... You know, you said it drifted a bit. Yeah. And I think that was to do with how global it was. Okay. In a way. Mm. Because what he's done is, he said, you know, back in the 1970s, they had to tell a story about an inv- an alien invasion in your backyard. Mm. We don't have to do that anymore. But because of that, maybe it felt slightly loose. I don't know. I don't know. I think all that worked. I think Mexico worked. Oh, I think it all worked really nicely. Yeah. It's just that it felt like there was a slight lacking in focus. Because if you're going to do that, <coughs> if you're going to tell a story where you've got an alien invasion in your backyard... Mm-hmm. You can split the characters up, but because they're all still in basically the same location, you can forget about one of them for a while. So that the, if, say, you've got three characters that you've split up mm. in 1975, if you can forget about one of them for a while, and God knows the number of times where a story forgets about Harry Sullivan for almost entire episodes, Robot, for example, before this, he comes back at the end. Sorry, just that suddenly. Reminded me of something. This uh, they make mention of a naval surgeon who developed a Harry Sullivan. Yeah, mm. I know. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. Carry on. Back in 1975, you could get rid of Harry Sullivan from us an entire episode, and because everybody was already in the same location anyway, you didn't really mind or notice because mm-hmm. you knew he was there. So even if he's not on screen, you still feel his presence because he has a presence in the story. Whereas if you split people up into three different countries, you have to keep going back to each one of them to remind the audience that those stories are taking place in tandem. Mm. So what you need to do is give each of them an equivalent-ish amount of screen time. Mm. And what that works out as is not necessarily the same number of minutes, but the same number of scenes. And if it means the same number of scenes, that means you need to have the same number of plot advancements. Mm. And if you've got the same number of plot advancements in three different stories that are taking place in tandem, that wouldn't naturally have three different plot advancements all Mm. taking place in tandem. Some of them need to be shoehorned in. So it felt a little bit like, for example, Clara's story didn't have as much story as the Doctor's or Kate Stewart's. So some of the plot advancements there 
were kind of shoehorned in. Or maybe the other way around, actually. Maybe mm. Kate Stewart's one was the one where you keep getting yeah. slight plot advancements mm. when you didn't need them. But do you know what I mean? Some some of those scenes felt a little bit irrelevant. Mm. And that's why it kind of felt loose at those points. Yeah, it wasn't because quite... those scenes needed to be there because of the character, but they didn't need to be there I, because of the story. Yeah, I didn't quite get the relevance of Kate Stewart's travelling out to that town. To, yeah, to yeah. give her something to do. Yeah, felt like a bit like that. Yeah, you're right. Mm. But there you go. Can I just... Uh, oh, you haven't scored yet. No. Uh, nine as well. Yeah. Mm. There we go. Nine, nine, nine. Mm. Uh, can I just give a punch to the air for the lady? Uh, so I'm using that word lady. Am I allowed to say lady? Is that a word I'm allowed to say? Because I got in trouble for it last time. Well, I'm going to get to this when we get to the emails. Okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, the lady playing uh, Kate Stewart's the new Osgood, yeah. as such. Mm-hmm. I just thought she was brilliant. And now she's dead. Mm. Or is she? Well, yeah. But, I mean, it looks like she's dead. It's Considering this programme it is Doctor Who, it's actually pretty hard to kind of look scared. And she looked yeah, very scared. Mm. Oh, yeah, she's good. Yeah, she was very good. Shall we do a few emails, then? <clears throat> There's a load here, so we may not get through all of them. Gentlemen, says Doc Whom, I am writing you to complain about the promises made by the Blue Box podcast in its advertising last week, JR. Advertise. Just Sorry. Last week, JR said that one of his podcasting aims was to encourage Doctor Who fans to be better people. I've been listening to the Blue Box podcast (laughs) since day one, and yet, looking back over those three years, I can confidently claim that I am not a better person now than I was then. I would agree. In fact, quite the opposite. Does the Blue Box podcast offer a refund to anyone who has fallen for your advertising contract and has not become a better soul through listening to you? If so, I should avail myself of this. Sincerely yours, Doc Whom. I can tell you, Doc, not only are you not a better person, but you're not a funnier one either. (laughs) And all the money that you've paid to JR will be paid back to you. Oh, you haven't paid now. Never mind. You wanted a refund? P.S. Lee was perfectly correct in saying that there are men who can write fantastic females and it was quite wrong to correct this to either there are men who can write fantastic women or there are males who can write fantastic females. That was actually Simon, but never mind. Why? Because the writers will always be adults, but the characters they write can either be adults or children. Therefore, females is more appropriate than women because female children are girls, not women. Whereas the only male writers will be men. Uh, no, that's not it. It's because if you say men, you correspond it with women. If you say males, you correspond it with females. And if you say boys, you correspond it with girls. Mm. You don't correspond boys with females or men with females. You know, these two have corresponding parts. And if you're going to correspond them in a sentence, you should correspond the parts that correspond with one another. Mm. Okay. Just like that lady writers and gentlemen writers. Yeah, yeah, but you wouldn't say that. Well, he I just would. did. Yeah, he did to make a point. It's just my turn of phrase. Mm. <clears throat> on, ponce. Exactly. I wasn't going to say it, but okay. now that you have. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with the age of them. 
Dear Podders, after watching the latest episode, The Woman Who Lived, two things struck me that I was sure you'd mention on the podcast. Mm. The smaller of the two was, did we see the invention of the Doctor Doctor joke form? Anybody remember that episode well enough to remember that bit? Because I couldn't. Oh, no. Did he do a Doctor Doctor joke? Uh, he did, it's during the gallows scene, isn't it? Doesn't he do that during the gallows scene? When it's... Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Second, and rather deeper, was... Didn't you look at a Shilder's memory library and think Castrovalva, a very impressive collection of books, but all remarkably new looking? And that's from Ian Davison, new to the podcast, but a long time Doctor Who fan. Mm. Mm. Hello, Ian. Yeah. I did notice that, actually. I did mentally log that, but I logged that as just a facility of the production. Mm. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, cobwebs. the same way we had. <laughs> the other week, there was a, a book that was... Um, from pre-printing presses, and yet it was obviously printed and bound. Yeah. And but it would have been so expensive to get somebody to hand write and hand bind that book. That was just because the production needed it. And on that note, also, I have seen a number of complaints from people saying about the girl who died. Viking helmets didn't have horns. That uh, was an invention of yeah. the Victorians well, who were romanticizing. <laughs> The Vikings, and I'm thinking to myself, romanticising them in their fiction, mm. and I'm thinking to myself, okay, surely the point there is that in the 21st century, it is acceptable for us now to be romanticising the Vikings with horns, yeah. as it was 150 years ago. Yeah. What's changed? Yeah, okay. It's so, a story. Viking helmets with horns, and also there's a lot of people very electric upset about ears. electric heels. Honestly, I can overlook all that. As long as it's entertaining, it doesn't matter to me. And besides, as I heard pointed out this week as well, after the events of the Big Bang, who knows, the universe we live in now might have electric eels off the coast of Denmark. Exactly. Simon has no Well, problem. I was... Yeah, <laughs> I can take or leave that episode anyway, really, but... Yeah. Oh, I love that one. That was my favourite so far still. I just love the ambiance of it. Mm. I just, it's one of those things, I just love that kind of setting. Mm. Not the Viking thing, but the sort of village thing. Yeah, no, I really sort enjoyed of, it. And the slightly more relaxed pace of it. Mm. Well, as I've said before, I, I, the, the beginning of the episode, I started thinking, God, I'd love them to just do a historical. And it was once all the fantasy stuff coming, started coming in, I kind of lost my way with it a mm. bit, but. It's still good. It's still good. It's also still so good. Mark, you've not told us what you thought of those two episodes, not in any detail. Uh, I really enjoyed um, The Girl Who Died. Um, I, th- I appreciated the change in tone. A lot of people have been comparing it to Robot of Sherwood from the previous season, and I could see some parallels with that. A lot, but mm. I thought very favourably. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, I had more of an issue with the second story, I know it wasn't strictly a two-parter, but because you had that linking character, um, maybe it's my own fault for expecting something different from what we got served up, but I just found it a bit... I didn't really believe in the character. I just felt it didn't come across to me. Um, I can't try and find the right words to put. I, I just found the chemistry between Maisie Williams and... Peter Capaldi didn't really sell it to me. Um, the whole thing of her... 
I can understand how if you're living for 800 years where you're not supposed to and the whole thing about not being able to remember things, I thought that was a really clever idea. But the whole thing of becoming so detached from um, humanity that you are one minute very happy to kill someone to in order to get your escape to wherever you want to go and then all of a sudden it seemed like with a flip of a coin it was oh god I've realized I've been a complete idiot I do want to save people it just seemed a bit I suppose it's the limitation of just having one story to try and do Um, the lion I think as you were saying earlier worked for the kids to keep them interested didn't really do an awful lot for me Um, I thought it was the weakest one of the story of the series so far Really? Yeah. I so, think it was really strong. Mm, mm, apart mm. from apart from the gear change, like you say, where she did this had this realization mm, that mm. didn't just didn't work. But yeah. but the rest of it I thought was quite consistent. I'm Re- quite happy to overlook things like that in forty five mm, minute episodes because mm. it's just what you need to overlook in order to have forty five minute episodes. I thought that, that the second part was stronger than the first. But that's Ruf- me. Rufus Hound, I'll admit, I'm coming to it with a bit of baggage because I really don't like him. I, I'm sure he's a lovely person, but his comedy just leaves me completely cold. Does nothing for me at all. So I think that possibly preempted my viewing of the the episode. Do you like the way that Mark spent 17 seconds talking about the one he liked, and has spent three and a half minutes talking about the one he didn't? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, it's easier to pick out the things you don't like, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Oh, it's like you say, though, isn't it? You know, if you're entertained, it's done its job. Yeah, exactly. If you're not entertained, then you kind of... So in terms of scores, I would give um, the girl who died a 7 out of 10, and I'd give the uh, woman who lived 5.5. Oh, he's done that to... Get my back up, haven't you, yeah. Mark? Yeah. <laughs> is that high 5.5 or low high 5.5? 5. Uh, it's a middling 5.5. It's a 5. All right, it's a 5 then. Well, otherwise, it's only one point away from the one that you liked. No, it's a 5. Exactly. Mm. <clears throat> you just did that to try and annoy me. <laughs> did it work? I'm trying to think, what do we, Not what really. did we give them? I saw what you were doing. I saw right through mm. it. What did we give? Well, I give, a f- I give the girl who died a 9 and the other one an 8. Mm. I give it, give it a six, go who died, and I gave an eight to the so the other way around. Can't remember. No, I think you liked the girl who died more after we'd first seen it, and liked it less after you'd seen it a second time. But we'd already done the podcast by that point. Mm. <laughs> Fixed points in time, as I say. I think you maybe give it a seven, then perhaps. Mm, maybe I thought I'd given a six this series. But anyway, yeah. Maybe you did for um, ah second half of Toby Whitehouse's story. Maybe, maybe. Mm. Yeah, you're already miserable about that one, and I really liked it. Hmm. I give. Oh, six, but if yeah. you've heard though, I rewatched that and enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, yeah. But I've heard that from several possible. people, but I yeah. still, I still don't think the story would add up. And when I say the story would add up, I don't mm. mean in terms of the plot. I mean in terms of the story. You know, I still think the problems that were in that story that I saw as problems are still there. That first episode is still a procedural where you can't work out what's going on until you're given the information. My hunch is that the the little clues that was you know, the breadcrumbs along the way in the second half 
uh, we both felt that that wasn't really working. That wasn't echoing back. They weren't back. breadcrumbs, though. They were no. bricks. That's the point. Mm, okay. If it had been, if it had been breadcrumbs, yeah. and somebody had been working stuff out, brilliant. But nobody worked anything. Well, strangely, out. yeah. When I watched that episode again, because it wasn't none of it was a mystery, I could kind of just follow the story, enjoy the story for what it was. As this happened, this happened, this happened. Mm-hmm. This is how it resolved. Mm. But yeah, as you say, uh, if it's it's a program you watch, you know, like some kind of mystery drama or something like that, and you're trying to work out who's the killer, that sort of thing, and that's not working, then then it's kind of failing. And, maybe and that's, that's what... really what it was because it was a mm. it was a who done it really who done it yeah but, but it was set that? or a, it was set up as a procedural mm. it was set up as something you need to work out mm. and if you're going to set something up as something you need to work out as we saw this week just with that one scene with Clara as we see all the time with Stephen Moffat if it's something you're setting up so the audience have to be able to work it out. Although you don't want them to work it out, hmm. you still have to make it so that they can. Yeah, a certain element. Yeah, or or they get to the end and they go, ah, yes. But there was never but, an but there was ah no, moment. There was never an ah moment. No. Would you lump Ghostlight in with that kind of storytelling? No, but then why would you? A lot of people complain that. Ghostlight doesn't make an awful lot of sense. But it's not a who done it until you know what's no, going not, on. No, I'm not. No, yeah. I think you're missing what I was trying to say. I think a lot of people struggled with the two-parter from this year because they found it didn't really make sense to them or add up. And I think Ghostlight, although it's a different genre, has a similar kind of thing where they've gone from what should have been a four-parter down to a three-parter and they excise a lot of stuff yeah but no it's two entirely different things Mm. I think if you didn't get under the lake and before the flood on Mm. the first time then you weren't watching because I don't think there was anything even remotely difficult in there Mm. and yet and the problem with Ghostlight was they left out an explanation for what contact was not contact Mm. um, Uh, oh what's the word my god control Control. they didn't bother to explain what control was Simon. Sorry? Control not ladylike. <clears throat> and if you're not going to explain what control is, mm. then people aren't going to be able to work out why control's important. Or female-like. Or woman-like. And you're not going to be able to make the plot add up. Mm. So in Ghostlight, they left out something that you needed in order to make the plot add up. Yeah. Whereas in uh, Before the Flood, the entire plot added up much more easily than it should have. Mm. It should have been more difficult to try and put the pieces together. It should have been possible to, but it should have been something that you struggled with. Mm. And so that something that, once you could do it, Makes you should sense. have had a reveal yeah. at the end where you get your ah moment mm. when it all adds up. But because it wasn't difficult, there was never a moment where it didn't add up mm. for you to have a moment where it did. Yeah. So no, do entirely different things, Mark. <laughs> Howdy doody boxers of a bluish hue. Oh, one final thought regarding The Magician's Apprentice. How low was that plane that the master stopped to give Clara some shade? Either it was about 30 feet off the ground <laughs> or it was the world's largest passenger plane. I'm also sure that we haven't seen the last of Michelle Gomez this season, even though when we last saw her, it looked like the discarded old Daleks had hit the fan. 
Moving on to Under the Lake Before the Flood, and what a corker of a first episode, pretty much on par with, if not even potentially better than, the previous story. The Radio Times seems to take quite a negative view of the Base Under Siege format, basically saying we'd seen it all before. But the reason that Doctor Who keeps returning to this type of story is because it really, really works. Just having that confined environment with a seemingly unstoppable menace is a terrifying prospect. And it makes you realise what you've been missing by not having so many such stories these days. Yes, there were similarities to other stories here, but that never stopped Terry Nation, did it? <laughs> and what a glorious set the Underlake base was too. It was. It was. Yeah. Possibly one of the reasons that the concluding half didn't go down so well with some was because of the change of setting, which removed that claustrophobic feel the opener had. I'm also sure that the Doctor's actions in causing the paradox will come back to haunt him, pun intended. Pun untended. No, I think he meant to say intended and spelled it wrong, who knows. Further down the line, as inevitably will Clara's gung-ho attitude. We know that her tenure is drawing to a close and quite how she will leave as a mouth-watering prospect, especially as I'm certain Moffy will want to have her go out with a bang. The last batch of episodes gave us a back-to-back pair of pseudo-historicals. As near as damn it, two single-parters but classed as a two-parter by virtue of the Maisie Williams effect. Again, we revisited the idea of the hybrid. Again, we revisited the notion of the enemy inside the friend and the blurring of the lines between the two. Again, we revisited themes of longevity and actions having consequences. And again, we revisited the idea of running away. We also saw the return of Terry Nation, who presumably named Leandro. Although this led to where Lee thought all things went mentile, whatever that is. (laughs) Simon was pleased to see the return of lady writers, which Lee found most amusing, and commented that when you eventually met Catherine Trigena, that she would refer to Simon as Gentleman Brett. Presumably, she would refer to JR as Gentleman Prick, and Lee (laughs) as Dear God Man put on something else besides that scarf. I think it is quite conceivable that we haven't seen the last of young Maisie, and I'm sure that Rufus Hound will be massively keen to make a return, if at all possible, as well. So... <clears throat> episodes 3 and 4 score a solid 9 out of 10 adding up to 18 out of 20 the first again episode better than the second while 5 and 6 score 8 out of 10 adding up to 15 out of 20 Vikings beat Highwaymen which makes Kate Bush very happy and Adamant a bit miffed I like the latest Blue Box podcast theme, by the way, although it was sad to see the end of the previous one, the Ava Banana theme, as I called it. The last podcast ended on quite the most beautiful piece I think you chaps have ever done, with Simon's recounting of his conversation with his four-year-old daughter, Kudos Gentleman Brett. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> that was from Miles Northcott. He's a soppy sword, too. I'm sure his maths don't add up. <laughs> Hang on, he's just giving me a massive compliment. He'll yeah. talk about his... Bloody maths. Seriously. Dear Blue Boxers, I have been listening to your latest podcasts. They were quite good. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) You have been talking about this year's Doctor Who epidurals, which have also been quite good. Even though we haven't yet seen Clara in her bikini, I have enjoyed them. The second story was a goat story set in a base which was buried under a siege and had a deaf moly man who couldn't be heard and his friends who were also goats. There was a pretty lady who couldn't talk. I liked her a lot. The girls there all wore shorts, which made me happy. The baddie was called the Fisher-Price, and I think they will make a toy of him. He was voiced by Peter Sellers and Piggity Witch, who was daft morals in Spa Warts, and he was quite scary, and I think he was married to Jordan, who I like very much, 
but is also very, very scary. The last story started in Vikingland, where the Doctor and Clara met Mary Williams, who is one of the Williams sisters who are very good at tennis, and she is also from another TV show all about chair covers called Game of Throws. Anyway, she was very small and very pretty, and I liked her, and in this she was called Sheila. The Vikings were very funny and had horny heads, and in the end the Doctor won because of his eels. The next week, Sheila had turned into Adamant and had teamed up with a pusscat. It was quite funny, and I sang along. On the podcast, JR had had a bit of a rant about some people who had upset him, and the following week he thought he was a prick. It's okay, JR. Quite a lot of people seem to think I am a prick too, so you can be my friend still. He read out a few emails and was doing lots of silly voices, but then said he couldn't keep it up. I also have this problem, but I have some tablets which might be able to help him. One of the emails was from Matthew Kelly, who said that the doctor returned the favour River gave him by giving his last regurgitation to heal her wrist. I wish he would give one of his regurgitations to heal mine, because it does get quite tired sometimes. Mm. Lee was only wearing a scarf during the podcast, which was a coincidence, as so was I. He said he was doing it because he saw Viewmaster to a kill a few weeks ago, and I wondered if he had been dressed like that since he saw the film, which was a James Pond film. Simon saw some sweat on Lee, and JR told him that it wasn't sweat. Simon said, come on, and started stroking something, and JR said he would beat it out of him. Lee said it was cheese. I think I've been in this position before, but I've never found cheese, and JR has never beaten it out of me, and Simon has never stroked it. Lee likes Vikings and Ortons, but wanted to see rapping and pigeoning. I don't like rapping apart from M&M because I like his sweeties. JR talked about Clara naked and oiled up in some kind of mud bath with Jane Austen Allegro. I am back now, I just had to do something, and I wish the doctor had some regurgitation edgy that I could use. Lee got confused by the lady things, and I do understand as it confused me for a long time, but then I started watching some videos, and now I understand and don't make the same mistakes I did back then, and always check before trying anything, especially when I go down the docks. JR has said the Doctor has to go into a situation and reveal himself to make a difference. I have tried this, and it does make a difference, but it has got me banned from Liddles and made it harder for me to get my shopping. Next week is when the Saigons come back. They were last seen in a musical when the lady one did some singing. Also, we will see the Bugadier's daughter again, and also Oz Clark and the lady who was in the BCB show about VW Beatles and maybe Clara will be in her bikini or in that mud bath with Jane Austen Maxi. I need to do something again now, so I will be right back again soon. Your friend, Sharak Jeers. Sweet baby Jesus. Mm. He's not wrong, Jordan is... Scary. Yeah, no, I'll give you that. And on that note, until we repair back to Simon's next week to talk about the latter half of the Zygon story, I was JR. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.